and welcome to episode 18 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. Last week, I was in London for the OptiPro Forum, an annual soccer conference put on by the data and analytics company Opta, which is one of our partners and is now owned by Stats Perform. The forum featured speakers from around the soccer world, and in this episode, I'll talk to four of the presenters about the work they shared, what they do in soccer analytics. We'll hear from Karun Singh, a software engineer who used tracking data to identify recurring match situations. David Perdomo Mesa is a data scientist at 23 who looked at how different playing styles worked against each other. Will Gerpenar Morgan, a stats performed data scientist who identified player roles using unsupervised learning. And Vignesh Giant, who is working on a master's in data science and analyzed how to break down a low block defense. After that, I'll be joined by True Media's Albert Larcata, who is also in London, and we'll go through some big picture takeaways from the forum. Now, without further ado, here is Expected Value from the OptiPro Forum in London, starting with Karun Singh. We're here with Karun Singh, software engineer at the OptiPro Forum. His presentation was entitled Learning to Watch Football, Self-Supervised Representations for Tracking Data. Karun, thanks for joining us. First, just kind of tell me uh, what this presentation was about. What does translate the title into kind of a practical application sort of thing? Right. Firstly, thanks for having me. Uh, I think to, to decode the title a little bit, the way this started was that I sometime last year, I, it hit me just how important video analysis is nowadays to clubs. Uh, most clubs have not just one, but multiple video analysts working for them, uh, really uh, looking at video footage in, in a very detailed manner, trying to get all these insights. But what is interesting is that video analysts spend a lot of time just scouring through video, trying to find these situations that are interesting uh, to show to coaches and players after that. And I really felt that that was a gap that maybe data could help fill in. So this whole project was about building this collaborative layer between analysts and algorithms. So analysts look at video, algorithms look at tracking data, but in essence, tracking data and video are just two views of exactly the same thing. Uh, so we can leverage that connection and, and bridge the gap that exists today and help provide all these tools, these productivity tools to analysts to help accelerate their workflow. So you basically started, this is really interesting to me, you started from, we'll say a still frame, which shows where every player and the ball is mapped over a field. So a still frame of XY data. And in some ways, initially it feels like a step backward. You know, you're going from uh, moving video, moving data to an old still, which you could get from, you know, a freeze frame of a photograph or whatever. But then you turn it into something that's really useful. So tell me about the process of deciding that's how you start and move forward. Yeah, so I should say that in an ideal scenario, we would be using clips of frames, so not just a single frame. Uh, but this is sort of the trade-off between simplicity, feasibility, and, and just how easy it is to get something up and running. So if you do this with single frames, it becomes much more feasible. You don't have to worry about uh, storing large frames of data. Or, or large clips of data, you just have to worry about these single frames. So really it was more of a practical reason um, and the actual, the true modeling uh, reason uh, doesn't really exist. It, you know, In the ideal scenario, you'd be able to do this over entire clips. But turns out in practice, one interesting property is that because football players are humans and the ball is also an object, they don't move around all that much between successive frames. And so it's it's interesting because even though we do it on the frame level, 
the accuracy of the system is not all that bad. Uh, if you look at a clip of frames, there isn't all that much movement between those frames. So it's a good approximation because you get to trade off uh, a little bit of accuracy, but in turn you get a lot of feasibility with it. So you run your algorithms and such, and what is the end goal as you run these? So you start with one, you're finding similar scenarios, and then how do, what would your next step be if you're taking this to a coaching staff of a team or something? Right, so there's a, there's a couple of tools that I think are, are very useful for video analysts. So the first one is called Situation Search. This is a scenario where an analyst is watching a match and they see something interesting developing. They want to go back and find all the instances in which that situation happened. Uh, this could be within the same match, it could also be across many matches in a season. And this is something they do manually today, very time intensive, but with this tool, uh, we can pass that single tracking frame through our algorithm and immediately find similar tracking frames. So we can essentially compile these highlight clips automatically for the video analyst. So that's one, and I think the, the second way in which it can be used by coaching staff or, or analysts today is for auto-tagging. So right now they look at video footage very meticulously and tag these various tactical or positional events. So for instance, tracking data doesn't come tagged with things like counterattacks. And so one thing you can do with this is you can provide a few examples of what a counterattack looks like. The system will tend to pick up on that and learn from that. And then you can use the scale of the algorithm to go and tag matches that you don't have the time to watch. So I think these are a couple of really time-saving applications for analysts and coaching staff to, to use um, pretty much starting today. I always think it's great. I mean, in our product, it kind of works the same way. It, there's technology, but the technology has the purpose of saving people time, letting them do other things. Uh, what else? You talked a little bit about there. What else would be kind of an extension of this that if you were to take this further or someone else were to take the idea further, what would be next? That's interesting. I think there's a, a lot of core improvements to be made to the way we're modeling things. Uh, you pointed to this a little bit previously. We're only making, uh, we're only looking at single static frames right now, whereas in football, the players are never static, the ball is never static. So really the first big improvement that we need to make is to incorporate that nature, the dynamic nature of frames by either looking at a set of frames at a particular time, like a video, uh, or by incorporating the velocity of players and the ball in other smarter ways. Uh, so that's definitely one improvement to make. And uh, there's one more practical improvement that I, I think needs to be uh, made, which is around handling incomplete frames. And what this means is the current system always assumes that the input tracking frame always has 23 sets of coordinates. So 11 for team A, 11 for team B, and the ball. Whereas in reality, sometimes this is not the case. So for instance, uh, team A gets a red card, they're down to 10 men, we won't be able to process the rest of that. So that's that's one case. And second, as tracking data starts to be collected more and more from single camera broadcast footage, we might have situations where at a certain point in time, we only know the up-to-date positions of a subset of the players. And I think uh, this, this sort of tracking data is becoming more and more common. And so because of these two reasons, I think it's also really important to first fix that issue of handling incomplete frames. I think those are, those are two uh, immediate improvements to be made. 
and I think uh, beyond that, honestly, it's it's a matter of I, I want video analysts to actually try this out and try this method integrated into their workflow. And I think that itself will generate a lot of new ideas. Uh, there might be friction in some places that we didn't expect, or there might be new ideas that they themselves come up with. Yeah, the feedback's always great just because, yeah, they see different angles than, than we might or whatever. So let me ask you just briefly about your background. So you are a software engineer by trade, uh, graduated from Cornell College of Engineering. Uh, what pushed you into this space into this for this forum to work on this project where did that come from right so I, I think it it goes all the way back to, to when I was pretty small I was obsessed with cricket and not football because I grew up in India and cricket is what everyone watches and I, I remember I was just obsessed with some of the stats that they would show on the screen uh, cricket is it doesn't have all that much analytics but it does have a lot of these aggregate stats uh, like you have in other sports like like baseball for instance um, so I think that's where it, it truly started uh, but I didn't quite have the skill set at the time to actually turn that into anything I went to Cornell uh, in upstate New York for my uh, for my undergrad degree and so I, I majored in computer science there with a focus on machine learning and computer vision and I think at that point after I graduated I felt like okay now I have not just the ideas but also some of the tools and it's time to put those together so this has pretty much been a, a weekend hobby or a, a night job for the past year and a half or so now um, but yeah it's been it's been a lot of fun so far let me ask you a general question about AI since it's what you've studied and it's kind of the hot buzzword I think in the sports analytics industry where very general question where do you see that going we've seen the computer vision and uh, using it for modeling, you know, whether it's body structure or uh, just simplifying data tracking. Where do you kind of see the AI world going in sports analytics over, you know, the next few years? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that's a loaded question. <laughs> there's a lot there, admittedly, but just, just yeah. what, what are you thinking? Right, I, I think there's, uh, there's a few different applications where we might be able to use it, and I, I like to think of them in slightly different ways. So I think there's some applications where we're trying to do sort of predictive modeling. Uh, for example, today we saw another presentation uh, where we were trying to predict the next event in a sequence of events. So that's, that's very predictive in nature and you're trying to almost future tell, you know, so that that's one bucket of applications. And I, I think the second bucket uh, is around sort of stuff that I was talking about earlier, which is, can we find this intersection where uh, AI is not upfront and, you know, it's not dictating things as much, but it's a tool that you add to your toolkit um, under the hood that helps you do your other job smarter. Uh, I think that's a less glamorous application of it uh, and it's not like you're predicting something you're not modeling anything as such uh, but the power of it it is that uh, you can index all this large amount of video and data pretty instantly and help improve actual people's workflows so i, I view them in in two buckets i think uh, both are slightly underdeveloped at the moment in football and there's a lot to explore uh, i'm personally more interested in the the latter i think there's a lot of in interesting stuff in the former too though all right, Karun Singh, thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thank you. We're joined now by David Perdomo Mesa, who is head of data science for 23. We'll get into his role there in a moment. But first, he was one of the presenters at here at the Opera Pro Forum, a presentation entitled Tactical Insight Through Team Personas. So we will explain what that means in a minute. I guess, David, first tell me what, what was the process like for this one? Because this was a different sort of presentation that was kind of club sponsored. So what was the process from your end as to how you got involved with this? Yeah, so I mean, you know, the the, the forum put 
calls out for proposals and they put calls out for um for some of these club-led proposals and we we were keen this year to kind of participate in this sort of event uh, with what we're doing um and we, we've been putting out uh proposals and, and trying to participate in the sort of event in this case we we sent out a, a couple of, of things that we wanted to do and and one of the things we wanted to do was uh in line with the uh with the swansea question so their their question was around the lines of um playing style and and what can you say about the matchup of playing styles in in the championship in the english championship um and we do we've done that sort of work i've presented that sort of work like it's it's an interesting question to think about playing style it's um i'd say it's it's less mechanical than what you do regularly so we 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 sent out a proposal for that and it got accepted on that track which meant that um the, the some of the swansea analysis team were heavily involved um they were really good they they invited us over to the training ground you know we showed that the presentation before uh, beforehand and we we spoke to them and even you know from big things to saying you know how do you, how useful do you find this to to small things where um, in terms of the presentation they were saying oh you know aesthetically if you're going to show a match um, people um, around football like to see the date of the match a lot so when you talk about you know when Swansea played Bristol City and you put the date of the match it's 14th of November 2019 suddenly it kind of makes it real for them so even that small sort of thing that went to the presentation so it's quite interesting to to go down that route of of, of really being being like uh, side by side with the with the club analysts, and yeah, we we ended up going with that with that track. All right. So as I said, the title is tactical insight through team personas. Tell me what that means and how you attack the problem. We did something around personas. That's something which uh, showed before in in the forum two years ago uh, via poster. It's uh, a method that we repurposed from natural language processing, from the area of topic extraction. Uh, and then we kind of repurposed it to be playing style extraction, where uh, the playing style of a team is represented by uh, sort of the the probability with which different features appear for them. Stuff like uh, you know if they play a lot of long balls, they're going to be a long ball style, and and this sort of thing. We use that method to to get a representation of team style, and then uh, we try to take these these like observed team styles in the championship and see when when different team styles face against each other, uh, how do they fare? And then you get all these classic kind of results of counterattacks are more successful against a team that's trying to hold on to possession and, and, and things that you that you tend to to hear about but it's, it's it was really interesting to kind of see them see the the like the data sustenance of that and how do you measure what sort of quantifiable output is there to measure uh, success of a style and success as of styles against each other so if, if two teams play against each other in a certain style there's several elements at play there then you know one team is very good the other team maybe a little bit less good uh, so then you know that a team, uh, the, the gulf of quality between two teams is such and such. And then what you're looking for is the marginal effect of the style they implemented. So you know, you know, you observe that match and you have some stats about that match and therefore you know uh, what what style they implemented. And then if it's, you know, Manchester City against Burnley and they should regularly score three goals against Burnley because there's this gulf of quality between them and they only score one, maybe you could say, well, actually, you know, they still won because they're a much better team. But... Um, Instead of scoring three, they scored one because they their style struggles against Burnley style. So it's like looking at that marginal effect on on how two teams fare against each other, given the style that they have. Very good. So if you were to keep working on this, for example, what would be a, a logical next step as you uh, would try to build on this, what you did for this presentation? I think something interesting, and, and I kind of regret that we didn't bang up on it enough in the presentation, is the fact that we use an extremely simple data set and and i think that's later in in the forum there was there was a mention to the fact that okay we have tracking data now and and tracking data kind of puts this pressure to say you know we have so much information now that's so much things we could do 
um, we use an extremely simple data set, which is uh, like Optus F9, which is aggregates per match. How many long balls did you put this match? How many crosses in, uh, did you did you do this match? Um, and and through like creative approaches, you can you can still extract a lot of juice from it. And I think it's great to see, and it's, it's an interesting exercise to do. And I guess the next thing I would do is say, okay, well, we, we had this little creative approach to look at team styles in F9. Um, can we get a little bit more robust with different, you know, just even if it's, you know, the same approach, but uh, using event data. So, you know, the coordinates in which the long ball took place or that sort of thing. Um, so I think we'd, we'd maybe try to refine our, our notion of style looking at... Um, uh, more advanced data sets. Very good. So you work, as I said, a full-time head of data science at 23. Tell me what 23 is and what you do as a data scientist there. So 23 is a is a company that tries to build tech around data and football. Let's say that the niche we found is, is media, particularly. Uh, we sell tech to media companies that um, helps them use data in their in their day-to-day exercise of producing content and that could be graphics so we provide apis that help them do graphics quickly with heat maps and shot maps and stats that sort of thing but also you know tell them where there's a story give them a, a nice little interface where they can look at stories and rank players and and on this on that and filter by age and that sort of thing so it helps them uh, construct their stories uh, and construct their stories around, around data basically um We've built that sort of tool, and we have some some interesting things that um, you know. Let's say the frontiers we're pushing on now is is uh, telling media clients where there are stories to be told. Um, it's one of the more interesting things we do. So we tell them, um, yeah, there, there's a story here that you might want to tell on this timeline, on this, on you know, the the heat map of this player has changed. Do you do you want to tell a story about that? And then let's say that the data science job there is is to maintain all these all these products that we do, be that simple APIs of stats, but also you know, when, when you want to recognize whether there's a change in something, there's some math involved in terms of how is this statistically significant and, and that sort of thing. So we, we write the code um, uh, around that, and that's what the data science role entails there. I'm curious what the anal- analytics world is like in UK media. I'm, I'm come from the US and worked at ESPN, so, and I'm familiar with how it is there. And following from afar, I see, you know, some stats analytics in UK. So, but I'm curious, from your perspective, what is the, kind of the state of stats analysis in the media here in the UK? That's actually a very interesting question because, you know, it could come from several angles. I think the US market is so stats rich, you know, the sports in the US, baseball, NFL, basketball, they're super stats rich. And as such, the fans also want to see stats. So then when you think about maybe, you know, stats in the media in the US, you think about actual stats and the fact that people are consuming the stats. Which is often, you know, it's all it's all uh, good and well. That could be part of stats uh, within media. But there are other things. Maybe you don't even want to talk about stats. And as I was describing earlier, maybe it's graphical. Maybe what you want to do is create viz. Right. And it doesn't mean that the consumer of the content wants to see stats. But if they want to consume viz, and that viz is something about, you know, down which flank did a team play, uh, and, and somehow, you know, when a team is playing and, and they're in a move, they move from flank to flank. So if you want to say, well, they are creating danger down the left, what does that even mean? And that's actually a data-driven question. So even if you're not showing actual stats to the, to the, to the end consumer, uh, maybe you're, you, you have to do stats in the background where you have to say, okay, if we want to show them what, down which flank a team attacked, we already have to ask ourselves the question, which flank did they create danger in? Um, so you could either use stats because the people want to consume that directly or data because they want to consume that directly. You could also use data even if the people don't want to consume it directly to kind of make better content regardless. And I think that's like a, an interesting kind of path to see that there's there's two different things to be done there. Yeah, that's very familiar to me. A lot of what I did at ESPN, you know, it's it's the story really that drives it. And sometimes the best way to 
tell that story is to have an analyst talk about something. Sometimes it's, yeah, it's data viz. Like, like you said, show me the heat map. That's where he played. That's telling a great story of, you know, how a team is or isn't attacking or whatever it might be. So I like the way you kind of framed it. Sometimes the viz is what they want, but it's really about telling the story, not about using the stats necessarily, but sometimes the stats are the best tool to get to what you're trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right. Um, sometimes stats help you know where there's something to be said, even if the end user is not going to be aware of the fact that you're using stats or data. There's a story to be told and, and data could be very hidden under the hood and it's still you know like professionalizing everything that we do around around content it's the same you know i guess digital marketing it's a bit of an evil industry <laughs> and everything but people aren't aware of the complex maths that are going on underneath there to show them very targeted ads but there's complex math there i think even the same can be said about sports analytics there could be complex math going on in in, in pointing them to stories that are there to be told when when you say something like oh this this striker is called scored six goals in his last seven games that's the same that he'd scored in his last 60 games the fact that that became available to the journalist who's actually telling the story it's not because he remembered off the top of his head it, there could be some people building tech that helps him realize that and people don't really realize that you know it has to be data driven or anything like that and it's still an interesting story so it's I think it's, it's something along those lines, yeah. All right, good stuff. David Perdomo Mesa, uh, data scientist with 23. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Uh, yeah, no worries. Joined now by Will Gripenar Morgan, data scientist with Stats Perform. He and Paul Power had a presentation here at the OptiPro Forum entitled Role Discovery, Generating Data-Driven Roles in Football Through Unsupervised Learning. So, all right, Will, first just translate that into uh, – regular language and, and tell me about the gist of your presentation so i i guess what we're trying to get away from is just generic position lab labels like a center back fullback center midfielder striker and more look at what are players actually doing on the pitch what's their role in the team especially these days center backs it's not just about no nonsense defending you know they're they're actually driving play they're uh, you know they're spreading the ball out from the back fullbacks now again they're not just defensive stoppers there you know somebody like Trent Alexander-Arnold he's Liverpool's playmaker you know so it's trying to capture those kind of context and nuances and get away from those just sort of sort of narrow definitions from positions that's basically the idea more like what they do rather than what they are in the traditional sense right yeah exactly obviously fullbacks come in lots of different flavors these days so that's kind of the idea I know you put up a big flow chart, kind of, here's all the things we did. Tell me roughly or quickly in summary, kind of, what the process was to get to this end where you got these new and different labels for people. So we started out with some sort of fairly basic spatial descriptors. So where on the pitch do they play? Um, we then looked at the trade-off in terms of their passing profile, in terms of risk and reward from uh, different areas of the pitch. And then we also kind of layered in uh, playing style information. So what kind of moves are they involved with and contributing to with the team? And we looked at their shot profile uh, in terms of, you know, where are they taking shots from or like headers, um, things like that. Uh, and then the kind of final piece of the jigsaw, which I think gave us something really nice, like in terms of being able to separate out those roles was looking at um, the types of moves that the players are involved with. Uh, so chaining together passes and looking at what types of plays they're Playing. So are they involved in one-twos in the final third or, you know, sort of circulating the ball around the back, that kind of stuff. Um, and that gave us really nice kind of separation between players in terms of their role and what they're doing on the field. And what's the, so what's the end product at this point? Like when you get to the end of this presentation, what's the kind of the output that comes from all of this? 
we basically take around sort of 300 350 sort of separate elements and try and condense that down into sort of two word labels we got down to about sort of 19 different roles on the pitch we were only focusing on out, outfielders but you know we're getting different profiles for players who are primarily in for example the defensive zone so most of those will be center backs but some of them are very deep lying sort of midfielders who are doing similar kind of tasks and then you know obviously going th- through the pitch wide players players playing in the central areas attacking players forwards and that's kind of how we sort of built it up and looked at what roles they were playing probably should have asked this right off the start but you had a good example of two guys who nominally play the same position but do it very differently that seemed kind of be the impetus for the research tell me about them and then what you found about them when you got to the end yeah so like our sort of motivating example was uh Roberto Firmino and Robert Lewandowski. In a kind of traditional sense, they both are a number nine, they're a striker, you know, in our kind of position-orientated way of looking at things. But anybody who watches them play for more than five minutes will know that, you know, their role on the pitch is completely different. You know, Lewandowski is very closer to a sort of traditional striker. He's a very, very good version of that. And then Roberto Firmino, he's more often like dropping out into the sort of attacking midfield. He's linking passing moves in those kind of zones. And maybe, you know, he's trying to bring somebody like Mo Salah into the game. And he's maybe taking up those positions that, uh, you know, a more traditional centre forward might. You guys said something interesting. One of you said it during the presentation about, because this, I should say, this is all event level data that you're using. So one of you said that it's it's a very rich field that should not be overlooked as people are sometimes eager to move on to tracking data, AI, computer vision, whatever it might be. Can you expand on that a little bit? I know it's event data is not dead or done, but just tell me about why that is and how you just kind of come to that conclusion. What has kind of been done in the past a lot is we get very separate models. So if, uh, so one of the models we used was possession value. We had like a pass completion model. We had this one looking at the chains of uh, passes that the players are involved with. All of those on their own are quite like powerful techniques, but the whole is great and the sum of its parts. If you combine them together, that's when you can get that real powerful kind of representation of the players. That's where you can really elevate the event la- level information. Yeah, I like that about your presentation is you combine all these different things to make it that much better. So what would be, if you were to keep going down this path, and maybe you are, I'm not sure, but if you were to build upon these uh, labels and such that you have for players, what would be kind of a, an extension or the next step if you were to keep going? So I think there's there's kind of two things. So there's there's one is, are players able to maybe transition from one role to another? Uh, so Ben Mackerel, who's the head of OptiPro, um, he talks about Philip Lahm a lot. Good guy to talk about. He moved from being a very good fullback to a very good central midfielder. So, you know, are there players who could potentially transition from one role to another? I think that's one thing we're interested in. And then the other thing is kind of using that role information to improve our kind of predictions for like transfers and like transferring from one league to another. Maybe one role is more suitable for transferring from one league to another than maybe another one is. That translation is better. I think those are the two areas where we really want to kind of extend this. So your uh, bio in the program here, data scientist in the AI team performance group at Stats Perform. Uh, what do you do to speak very generally on a you know, day-to-day sort of basis? 
there's a team of seven data scientists working on, we call it soccer because we've merged with an American company. So yeah, there's, there's seven of us in the team working mostly on soccer. Um, I, I do a bit of cricket and rugby stuff. And, okay. But um, yeah, primarily, primarily uh, soccer is our focus. Um, so we're essentially taking the event level information and also the tracking data that we have and building models to look at team and player performance so that could be sort of tactical applications it could be like profiling players like player performance and so it's kind of trying to leverage that data and build models that we can use in like a predictive sense for recruitment or team performance and i have to ask because you took a not usual path i'm sure you get this a lot and you took a not usual path to work in sports and data science on the sports side. Uh, it says here, you investigated how tiny particles in the atmosphere affect our weather and climate. So to me, that's, you're basically some sort of weather scientist. What did you do when you worked on weather and then how did you transition here into sports world? Weather and climate is essentially, it's a, a very applied aspect of maths and physics. Um, and that was kind of basically what I was into. So what I did was uh, I did a lot of field research on a research aircraft. It was essentially, it was a passenger jet but they strip all the seats out and put a load of scientists and their instruments inside it. Um, like, so I did projects on like four continents nice. and stuff. So we were flying around collecting this data. That was part of my job. But then um, I, I took that data, analyzed it, built models off it. And it was more around kind of air quality and climate. So like one of the things I looked at was uh, fires in the Amazon and the smoke from those fires and how they like impact the local air quality and also from a, a big kind of climate uh, perspective. So yeah, that was kind of where I came from. Yeah. And then what was the what prompted you to transition over to we'll just say the sports analytics community? Things like the Opta Pro Forum actually, because I kind of saw some of this stuff happening online. Um, you know, getting lots of pieces of data off the internet, and uh, just started kind of doing that as a hobby in my spare time. Really enjoyed it. I presented at this conference a couple of times previously, and yeah, kind of spiraled from there, I suppose. <laughs> Are there things you learned in, I'll just say, the weather career that carry over? Like, like, What advantages might that give you as you are in this space? For this project, I got some uncomfortable flashbacks because one of the techniques we used was something I used during my PhD. <laughs> so there's things like that. Um, to some extent, I sit at a computer screen staring at numbers and trying to interpret them. You know, they were just about the atmosphere. These are about sport, obviously. So there's a lot of a lot of similarities in that sense. A lot of it is just kind of understanding data, maybe knowing its limits, kind of how you can like build models, how you can test things, you know, and trying to build up a picture that you can kind of use. <laughs> so the more the generic data science type of tools are what really come in handy. Uh, they're applicable in, I guess, almost any field. Yeah, exactly. And especially like uh, like sort of public academic research now is is very, it needs to be applied. So, you know, you need to be able to translate it so that it's, you know, usable by normal people. So it, it, in a lot of ways, it's, it is actually quite similar to working in football. You know, you're taking this esoteric data and trying to translate it into something useful and, you know, that you can either change policy maybe or obviously change performance on the pitch. All right, Will Gerpenar Morgan from Stats Perform, thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks very much. All right, we're joined now by Vignesh Giant, who is currently studying for a master's in data science, had a presentation here at the OptiPro Forum. Uh, Vignesh, first tell me just how you came about. This was sponsored by the Danish club Nordschland. So tell me how you found out about this and decided this is what you wanted to do and try it here. 
I felt uh, initially uh, there was a proposal, um, uh, and this was the question posed by the club, and uh, I had an idea of um, how I could answer the question, and I felt uh, uh, the past analysis have uh, failed to answer a few questions about uh, um, just uh, stuff that's very close to uh, tactics in football, and I felt uh, we could answer this through data. So what we wanted to do is just uh, try to understand what the problem is and. Uh, could we translate that to data? All right, so the question or the subject of your presentation, identifying and evaluating strategies to break down a low block defense. First, just give me kind of the quick definition of what that means and then how you went about attacking this problem. So yeah, uh, by your question, uh, we also wanted to know what a low block is, right, in football, because tactically you you have many practitioners come out and say, oh, this is a, te this is a team in a low block, but what actually defines a low block? Uh, and um, so that was primarily the question and what does the data show us and um, how we define what is low, how low is low? basically. Luckily for us, uh, uh, me and Joe, uh, I, I was working with a great mentor, uh, Joe, who uh, who had close connections and he would always go back to uh, the academy coaches at the club because that's the way it's structured. Uh, all the, um, the club philosophy is based from the academy all the way to the first team. Uh, we try to identify uh, what they think is a low block because ultimately they are the practitioners, right? So we wanted to understand their side of it and then translate that to data. That back and forth process is really interesting to me, trying to take a commonly used term and something that you know you or I would recognize on the field, but trying to define it with data. What's that process like? How did you go about trying to uh, capture a somewhat common term, but trying to define it narrowly? How did you do all that? So it started with uh, ideas, basically. Uh, we started with ideas. We started with uh, just basic stuff like direction and the velocities and um, trying to come up with the rules of what might it might look like and then uh, it was an iterative process uh, uh, because ultimately we did want to feed it back to the coaches because the other practitioners will want to use it right so what we did was uh, we came up with the base, basic few rules. Uh, the good bit of working with a football club is uh, we have a data scientist or director of recruitment who is Joe Mulberry. Uh, he knows how it works. He knows basically what's acceptable at the club. And he's worked with tracking data before. So uh, we had a few um, basic stuff like speed and velocity, uh, speed and direction. And it's all, all about using those metrics and how could we optimize using the metrics. And we did come across uh, supervised models we thought might actually uh, in, um, help us solve this problem but uh, it's not very intuitive um, what what was intuitive is can we explain this to coaches w what is happening in the situation and does it look right that's the most important thing you mentioned the, the supervised learning versus unsupervised and I also think it's interesting that you know unsupervised is kind of the hot thing you know AI and what and what everyone thinks is next and as someone mentioned today presenting there's still so much we can do with event level data like this, so what's the richness of this data that we have even at the event level? And uh, you kind of touched on it, but why you decided to go with that instead of trying to some advanced process? So yeah, we did uh, we have uh, we did have event and tracking data uh, that was uh, thankfully to Opta and and the football club, uh, but we thought the best way uh, to optimally use both of them was we start with the tracking data because uh, a low block the way is defined is basically on 
based on positions and average positions of players uh, on a football pitch. And uh, if you understand average positions of a player on a football pitch, then uh, through tracking data, and then we could use event data to actually augment it in, in a way that uh, gives us insights, that would be the best, right? So coming back to your question, um, that's what we thought uh, we could use uh, the data. Before we get to kind of what you've done with clubs in the past, so you do this project and you have an output at the end of how different methods were effective in breaking down this low block. What were the conclusions that you came to as far as you took this project? So think about conclusions, right? You can you can make many conclusions from it. I think the most impactful conclusion is always to look at, and if you go to any club, they would want to look at what they they are doing themselves what are their actions and the best way to do that is benchmarking processes right so uh, we want to use a frequentist approach just to benchmark how we doing this strategy how how are we actually approaching this uh, this whole scenario and uh, can we do better because we cannot change uh, a situation because football is a nuanced game and every year the teams like changing strategies but what we can control is us and what we do and how we can make it better and that's what that's the whole area of performance analysis really yeah conclusions a dangerous word of sorts because you don't want to treat this as an endpoint. if you were to continue in this path in this project like what would be the next natural step that you might do if you had more time or more data to work with that's a great question. Uh, uh, this problem was an narrowed focus, but uh, I think the next uh, step would be to use, uh, to identify phases of play, uh, different phases of play, and um, can we like proxy all of them? Because uh, what analysts do at clubs basically is try to do this. They spend a lot of time trying to like uh, iterate, um, reiterate stuff and try to look at stuff that uh, you know might look like what we want it to look like but we, if we come up with a rules-based approach just to identify phases of play what they could do is basically focus more on the insights and more often than not using basic rules can actually help us identify stuff in other leagues and and, and stuff like that and it's not just us who's defining the rules uh, these are practitioners who are actually defining it and the benefit of that is even if they're defining it in an uncommon way or not the right way um, we could always go back and say say hey these are the false positives that came from it if you're defining it this way then either either what you're defining is wrong or these are something uh, some these are false positives that actually might you might want to look at you previously worked as an analyst at a League One club. For those in the U.S. who might not be familiar, League One is essentially the, it's the third division in England. So I'm very curious about that experience because obviously you're not dealing with clubs that have the uh, resources or the data even of a Premier League club or even a championship in the second division. So tell me what that experience was like for you. I'm, I'm very curious uh, how the analyst role works at a League One club. So it's obviously uh, not as high as uh, the level you see in the Premier League, but it's it's all about uh, making those uh, uh, marginal gains, really. In any league, um, it's all about making the marginal gains. So um, that was more of a proper performance analyst role where we code situations with code like more like what we're doing we did today we code like phases of play using uh, sports code um, that uh, coaches can just look at videos but the problem with that is it's a manual process and the amount of time that we have between game weeks is is probably for the the opposition that we're facing next week a lot of times uh, 
uh, some of the coaches uh, don't believe what we're doing is right. Uh, so I would say uh, over the 100% work that we do, maybe 5% is what is recognized and probably looked at. So it's just it's going to take time to build those relationships and for them to get more data and better data. And I guess it's just kind of a trickle-down effect, I suppose, right, from the higher leagues and eventually it gets down there. Yeah, it's also about buy-in. And uh, if you see uh, the, the managers in the low leagues, uh, the, these are like players, ex-players or um, managers in the early stages of their career. So um, ex-players who have played in those leagues, so they have they only have the experience in that league. And uh, I think what differentiates uh, a player in, in a lower league and in a higher league is technical ability. Because physically, all of them are the same. Uh, for example, you can see a, a big difference in the the ball rolling time in the Premier League, whereas you see it in League One, it's easily like a 15 minute difference of the, the ball being in play. That itself gives you an insight of uh, how you could actually impact it. Uh, I think when Pep Guardiola came into the Premier League, he first said, you know, the uh, style of football is different and he had to adapt because the ball was in the air more number of times than it was in Spain. So I think it's uh, it's just an adaptive approach and what basically fits into a performance analysis environment and and buy-in like we spoke today is is massive because see uh, you can do millions of things and if if no one's going to believe you or no one's going to trust your process it doesn't work. All right, very good. Thanks, Vignesh Giant. Thank you for joining us here on Expected Value. <laughs> Back in the True Media studio, I'm Paul Carr, joined now by Albert Larcata. Thanks again to all of our guests from the OptiPro Forum. Albert and I, as mentioned, were both at the Forum in London last week. Uh, one thing I want to talk about, Albert, is I like the kind of the range of presentations that we had in the sense that, obviously, the field of soccer analytics is moving forward on the strength of tracking data and artificial intelligence and machine learning and unsupervised learning and all these buzzwords that are uh, true, interesting, accurate. And there are also presentations on things as simple as how can we attack or defend throw-ins better? And what, how are goal kicks changing given the relative uh, rule changes that have happened over the last couple of years? So we had these big picture things that you know, some of which aren't complete yet, admittedly, just because the data isn't there or it takes longer to dive into. And we had these very practical things that, uh, you know, you could go out on the training ground tomorrow and say, all right, we just need to defend throw-ins more aggressively and do something with that. Or let's change the way we do goal kicks. And these are things that happen dozens of times every game. So I, I like the variety there because you've got these very these things we think of as simple that are very practical and immediately applicable. And you've got these pie in the sky, big picture ideas that can also be applicable. Uh, it takes a lot more work. Uh, some of the technology or software or whatever it is might not be there yet. Just had this really wide range of things, both of which are very valuable and important in soccer analytics world, I think. Yeah, it was almost two different conferences going on. They seem to piggyback, you know, a uh, uh, event level, uh, event data type of uh, presentation followed by, yeah, some pretty crazy uh, AI-based uh, presentation. So yeah, it was good. It was a very good mix. My background is in data science analytics, but I kind of enjoy the simpler ones more. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I get more out of it, I should say. When I leave, I tend to remember those more and the takeaways and the applicable ones, whether you're dealing with you know, aggregated data, frame level tracking data, whatever it is, 
uh, the ones who tell the stories the best, the ones who have real world applications and do it in a succinct, uh, efficient way. Those are the ones I feel like that at any of these conferences, whether it's soccer or any other sports, those are the types of presentations that I think uh, attendees tend to remember more. Yeah, especially if you're in that role with a team where you know you could hand this paper to a coach tomorrow and say, like I said, all you have to do is not sit back on throw-ins quite as much. Or you know, here's the advantage that you gain if you take the throw-in faster. Just things that are really easy to understand. They don't even need a uh, purpose because if it, you know, some of the stuff you're looking is targeted at player recruitment or advanced scouting, or whatever it might be, and it's got to fit right in that hole. And some of this stuff you can plug immediately in tomorrow. So it, right. it's, it's fun to see the different things that some of which you can just apply because you're thinking about it watching a game right away. You can put it there in your head. It's almost like uh, fourth down conversions or something in the NFL. Like you can immediately just put it in action on the field. And some of it is a little more theoretical that comes into play behind the scenes once you get to a transfer window or something like that. Right. I'm, I'm going to contradict what I said one minute ago and say that the mm-hmm. presentation that I recalled most was Karun's, uh, mm-hmm. the, the one that where he kind of gave three different applications of this modeling that he had built. Uh, the, the one that stood out, the specific application that stood out to me was the auto tagging of uh, right. events off of tracking data. Um, that's, you know, a, a lot of people think of tracking data as almost gaining new insights and gleaning information that just wasn't possible to, to get out before tracking data. And there's certainly a lot of that going on. But I, I still believe that the first advances, the first real practical use cases of tracking data are simply things that are going to make teams more efficient. They're going to save them mm-hmm. money by automating certain things that had to be done by, by humans before or just doing things faster in ways that just were not possible to do faster before tracking data. That's the, those are the kind of advances in tracking data that I see in sports analytics for the first few years. With time, you know, you'll yeah. you'll start to get some of the the crazier stuff integrated and uh, put into people's workflows. But that's that kind of stuff's just not going to happen overnight. But right. easy easy wins, making things more efficient, um, saving saving teams money in certain cases. Those are the types of advances that that can come right away. Yep. Yeah, and that's what we've seen in every sport. You know, baseball. It's as simple as. I don't have to have somebody plot every pitch because now we have heat maps of his locations or the same in the NBA with you know shot chart data or NFL. You can, what is this guy's, what are these guys routes or what do they do in a certain formation? You can pull all that so fast instead of having to have a scout or a coach, you know, watch for a day of games or something like that. So yeah, it's going to be the same thing in soccer. Yeah, Karunz was really interesting about, uh, you know, the ball is here, what's going to happen or wh- what runs does a guy tend to make something like that. Finding those similarities is super low hanging fruit in some ways. It's not easy necessarily, but it's something that's super practical and saves time. It's just, it's very obvious how that helps a team. All right. Thanks, Albert. And thank you to all four of our guests from the OptiPro Forum in London. You can find their Twitter handles in our show notes and keep an eye on the OptiPro Twitter account and website for upcoming videos from the conference. Thanks to Andy Cooper, Ben McCreel, and everyone else with OptiPro and Stats Perform for the invites and for helping us out with the podcast there. Previous soccer-centric episodes of this show include conversations with Atlanta United's Lucy Rushton, StatsBomb Managing Editor Mike Goodman, James Tippett, author of The Expected Goals Philosophy, and Lori Shaw and Sam Gregory from last fall's Nessus Conference. Check those out in the archives. As always, please continue spreading the word about the podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. 
Hit us up on Twitter or email with any feedback at True Media Sports or expected value at truemedianetworks.com. Next week, our guest is another OptiPro Forum presenter, Tom Warvel, Senior Data Analyst with Stats Perform. He'll talk about his presentation on goal kicks, what he does for Stats Perform, writing and communicating with data, and what might lie ahead for him. So please come back for that. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that takes you inside the sports analytics world. Mm-hmm.